This podcast is sponsored by Bang & Olufsen. A concert recording, a new symphony, even your favourite podcast. It matters how it sounds. Peter Bang and Sven Olufsen knew this when they founded their Danish audio brand in 1925, and their vision endures today. For nearly a century, Bang & Olufsen has been pushing the boundaries of audio technology and continues to sit at the forefront of acoustic innovation, because sound matters. Find out more at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm Oliver Condy, the magazine's editor. With me in the studio today are Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound and Reviews Editor Michael Beek. Hello. Hello. So finally, we're here in our brand new studio over in Eagle House in Bristol. It's a fine setup. Ben, the producer, in his own little booth. He can only gesticulate us uh, <laughs> rather than his usual sweary rants. Only joking, of course. Um, he's calm personified. So today it's the turn of the October issue featuring on the cover Simon Rattle and Magdalena Kojina. As usual, the issue is packed with features, news, interviews and over 100 reviews. And just a quick reminder of our reader offer. We've teamed up with Street streaming service Primephonic to give you four months of access absolutely free of charge. Sign up and you can enjoy delving into more than 100,000 albums. Setting up your free access is easy. Go to www.primephonic.com slash music and use the voucher code 24bit. That's 24bit, 24bit. So without further ado, on with the show. Another busy month in the classical music world, so we brought along one news item each that's caught our eyes. Uh, you'll find plenty more in the October issue. Jeremy, what have you come up with this this time? Well, this story has actually developed a little bit in the last week or so. Um, <clears throat> in short, a nine-year-old girl in Berlin um, had applied to join the State and Cathedral Choir, which is um, a very old choir, it's over five centuries old, and had been turned away because it's an all-boys choir. Now, she has claimed discrimination and has, or her parents have taken taken the case to court. Um, originally, she's actually applied a couple of times. Um, first time, it was kind of a straight no saying, um, girls will never join the boys' choir. Then the second time, they seem to have softened their stance a bit and said, well, actually, she's not up to scratch. So they kind of wasn't ruling out, apparently, mm. kind of girls joining the boys' choir in general. Anyway, um, it has now gone to the court, and um, sadly for her, the court has um, chucked her case out after a five-hour deliberation, saying that um, it's not discrimination and it's down to the kind of the artistic freedom of the choir to appoint who they want. Well, I guess probably probably about right. If the choir wants to be an all boys choir, then it should be an all boys choir. I mean, the Vienna boys choir is a boys choir. Yes. I mean, uh, I, I think that's yes and no. The point that they were trying to make was because it's state funded and because of German Germany's constitution is that um, because it's a very specialist training offers at quite a lot of cost to the taxpayer, then that training should be made available to all. That was their point. Mm. I see. So it's, I, there's only a boys choir, not a girls choir, or a mixed alternative. Exactly. It is an interesting thing, though, because, uh, I mean, a lot of people would argue that girls' voices develop at a different rate to boys' voices. And, uh, you know, one can tell the difference. A lot of people would say that's absolute nonsense, you know, that you can't tell the difference at all. Um, as a parent, I'd feel it was a bit strange having my daughter in an all-boys' choir. Um, maybe the attempt was to create a precedent. I don't know. 
Yes, I think there, there's a point there. So, and of course, once that happens there, there's um, recently Leslie Garrett was saying that King's College Cambridge should also consider having girls in their choir as well, etc., etc. Once you've changed that, then yes, you have the precedent and you feel that we kind of spread quite a lot. As you, we mentioned before in these podcasts, a lot of cathedrals have a girls' choir and a boys' choir. There's not very many instances, I'm sure, where you've actually got a largely boys' choir with one or two girls in. Um, I'm I'm actually a little bit sceptical about those who say that you you can instantly tell the difference between girls' voices and boys' voices because um, I was a chorister myself and I can listen back to some of the recordings we made. And you sound okay, like a girl. I sound like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> but the the difference in the the timbre and the kind of the, the vo- boys' voices when, when I was singing was a huge. Um, some had a very strong steely voice. Some had very breathy voice. And I'm not sure you could really put that down to gender at all. No, but a lot of it's to do with the pool of talent you've got to draw on in a particular town or city. I mean, some churches, uh, colleges uh, will find it difficult to recruit the, the the number of boys they need to create the sound, the sound that the, the trebles are known for, that, that sort of homogenous sound that, that, trebles, that trebles have, that, you know, the beautiful Anglican sound. And I think there, there was one quite powerful kind of thing for promoting boys' voices in these choirs is that... Um, if you lose a lot of the boys singing at treble level, um, you're going to start losing people when their voices break and become altos, tenors and baritones. You'll have a much smaller pool of talent there as well. Um, which, what, but, would the, what would the age cutoff be for girls? Because girls' voices, in, in effect, in inverted commas, do break themselves. You know, girls' voices change, they modify. So at what stage do you say to girls, well, it's all very well you singing with trebles, but you know, there has to be a cutoff. It'd probably point. be about 13, wouldn't it? It'd be the same as the boys. I suppose so. But yeah, but again, you know when to chuck a boy out of a choir because his voice is broken. So yes, it's very agreed. difficult. With girls. True. And if there's no alternative for her to join, then you kind of think, well, if she wants to sing in a choir, then she should be allowed to. But anyway, let's move on. I'm going to uh, talk about my story, and we have a, a piece of music to treat you all with as an introduction. So that was Scotland the Brave performed by the Old Town Band and Pipes on the Smith & Co. label. And that leads us to a story in our October issue uh, revolving around bagpiper um, in Sunderland, uh, Alan Jameson, um, who has been practising the bagpipes in his garden at 4.30 in the afternoon, thinking that his neighbours would be generally in favour. But he's uh, received anonymous, um, uh, well, threats, I suppose. Um, Quotes that his pathetic attempt at playing your so-called instrument made him a public nuisance. So the idea that that a bagpiper is practising outside is upsetting the neighbours. I mean, the whole argument is, can one practise an instrument, trumpet, drums, piano, whatever it might be, um, in, in one's house or even in one's garden and expect everyone to toe the line and, and put up with it. I suspect it doesn't help the fact that it's a bagpipes. <laughs> which is, and it's outside. Which is an instrument which some people have a, quite a prejudice against. And it's actually, not a big garden either. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very small garden, yes. yes. I actually really like the sound of the bagpipes. But yes, in a, as a general point... Um, well, I used to live next door to uh, a kid who was learning the drums and he'd repeat the same rhythm again. 
But however, his parents insisted he only did it kind of 11.30 in the morning or 4.30 in the afternoon, so it wasn't particularly antisocial. And he soon got bored of it and gave up the instrument anyway. So, mm. I mean, 4.30pm is generally before people come home from work. So I don't, I don't know. It is a pretty... Uh, well, it's an acquired taste, isn't it, the bagpipes? Especially in a row of terraced houses, which is, this is. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a bit unreasonable. I think, you know, 4.30, we have so much ambient noise around us at that time of day anyway. It's not as if it's sort of 9.30 in the evening. I mean, they can complain about the noise of traffic next. I bet you people are playing stereos loudly in their car as they're driving past. Mm. I don't suppose he's playing for that long either. No, people have um, now Bluetooth speakers in their garden. Um, and listen to music. Um, um, Michael does. Uh, So he is a public nuisance. I am. Um, There are many people who are public (laughs) nuisance. I mean, you know, are we all all entitled to quiet, to silence at home? I'm not quite sure we are. No, I don't think so. In my house these days, the kids next door hit a football against the fence regularly. Our our lad used to do it the other direction. Um, We don't complain. You you learn to live with it a bit, don't you? It's all about living with people. Particularly when you live in close quarters, like in a terrace, which I do, and all the gardens are very close together and you you can hear everything. You know, so you just, you know, I wouldn't do it, you know, half past 11 at night or anything. So I imagine everyone's become movie soundtrack aficionados <laughs> now, haven't they, Michael? Yes. John Williams floating into the air. Oh, yeah, all over it this weekend. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Michael, it's, it's actually your turn for a new story. What have you? What it have is. You um, so this is the news that um, Jules Buckley has been taking on as the uh, new uh Creative Artist in Association with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. Now, Jules was also recently announced as guest curator for uh, next year's Cheltenham Festival, which is, I think, uh, really great news. He's done some great stuff at the proms, uh, really, really interesting stuff. He did the Abifa prom, uh, the Quincy Jones prom, which was one of my favourites of of recent years. And this year he's done the Nina Simone prom, uh, which is available uh, on the iPlayer to watch and listen to. Um, He's just a great sort of artist. Uh, He's got sort of really great imagination, creativity, and he's sort of all about opening up orchestral music to a, to a wider sort of populace I suppose and uh, he says himself he hopes to continue to innovate and challenge the stereotypes of what orchestral music should be and I, I think that's a good thing I, 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 It's nice to hear more about him than, than simply annually at the proms yeah. because he gets in effect well I don't use the word um, derog- in a derogative way but he gets wheeled out every year for the proms and you know to, to, to give the proms a sort of much more popular f- feel yes. and it's nice that he's now being his talents are now being used more widely definitely actually. he's been a bit of a poster boy hasn't he for sort of the the left field sort of proms if you like the yes sort of... yes do you yes. think this is all part of the bbc symphony orchestra's move across town in london because they're kind of coming away from this old style made of ale studios which are all slightly fusty and victorian to their new premises in east london and this is kind of do you think that's Almost part of that whole move. It's a sort of. You think East London's got a bit more of a sort of a. a bit vibe to it. Yeah. Yes, a, a, a sort of a trendy, grimy vibe to it that I think George Buckley's going to feed into. Well, uh, yeah, it's kind of just a change in direction, full stop, isn't it? It's a change in approach, it's a change in how the orchestra sees itself. Yeah, perhaps. And he worked with them in 2012 on their Urban Classic concert at the Barbican. So they've got a relationship that exists. And I think it's, they've sort of seen how he's come across at the proms the last two or three years. And sort of just grabbed onto that. And yes, I think, I think he's, a, he's, an, he's another positive poster boy for the you know popularisation of, of classical music. And, you know, and it's, it's wider reach. If, if you've got someone like that who is a bit more of a role model for people between the ages of, say, 20 and 40, then then that can only be a good thing. I Surely, think. I think so. Especially with someone's the integrity and talent of Jules Buckley. Yeah, well, that's the point. It's because he does it well, mm-hmm. yeah. which is why it works. So now I think it's time to move on. Should we talk about the magazine? Cue the jingle. It's 
So don't forget our website at classical-music.com where you can read about all the latest music happenings, thousands of reviews and a good deal more. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, where aren't we? And we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And if you fancy subscribing to our print edition, we have a special discount for our wonderful podcast listeners. That's all of you who can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost to just £25.15. and pence. You can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com slash music podcast. Jeremy. Yes, the piece I'm particularly interested in talking about this month is we sent our editorial assistant, Freya Parr, up to Bridgewater Hall in Manchester, where she tested out a new app, which has been run by the BBC Philharmonic. And it's called Notes. And basically, this app allows you, when you're at a concert to follow what's going on through your phone. So you'll get essentially program notes on your phone. Now, of course, this this may make some people absolutely shudder with horror, the very thought that people are sitting there, they've got their phone on and they're following their phone rather than actually eyes on stage. Um, but anyway, Freya, in her piece, she actually leads us through her experience of it, kind of says how well it works, kind of what are the pluses, what are the minuses. And it sounds very easy to use. Um, and... Her, her, I think her her feeling about it was actually largely positive. Well, I remember before she went up, the whole we were discussing it, and we were thinking that it was going to be pretty, you know, disruptive, yeah. and the idea of sitting there with glowing screens would be something that would, you know, put many, many people off. Uh, but actually, what they've done is they've produced an app that really doesn't glow at all. I mean, the phone s- subtly comes up with these notes. The, the people who are using them are segregated into another, into a separate area in the concert hall. So the people who really, really are anti-phones don't even see them. And uh, the notes seem to be very, very helpful and sort of bite-sized Twitter length notes and guide you through the music. I mean, well, I don't think there's much not to like there. My one caveat, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, is um, firstly, one hopes that people remember to turn all their alerts off so that yes. they don't get bings and tunes <laughs> and this, that and the other. And I'm an absolute devil for really bad music to alert me to various kind of WhatsApp groups and this, that and the other. Yes. And the other is, um, I would worry that people might get distracted and they've kind of been following the notes for a while and they might get to a bit which they're not particularly interested in and then kind of be oh, shall I go onto Twitter or Facebook or find out what the football score is or something like that? Mm. And I'd worry that people might not kind of always just be on the app itself and actually use the... It's like being told they've been given the green light to have their phone on. Mm. will almost give them an excuse to kind of poodle around on the web or whatever. Yes, there is that. I mean, people have always, you know, since time immemorial, had, had their you know, heads buried in programme notes anyway. So reading the adverts and the biographies and the programme, we've all done it, oh, yeah. you know, during a slightly dull bit of whatever it is, you know, you know, uh, Nielsen or whatever. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> tusk, tusk. Um, I've sort of been two uh, minds about it, though. It's sort of like, because in this instance, you're being segregated up to this sort of balcony to look at your phone. And it's, it's almost like segregating off those people who don't know so much about classical music. You can all sit up there looking at your phones and everyone else will sit down to say. I think it's more a question of protecting people who don't want to see the phones rather than segregating the people. I know, but that's how it's very interesting. The beginners sit over there kind of thing. Generally, I think if, if, if it's done right, it can be one for the people who know about music as well. It doesn't have to be for beginners. Sure. Just because you've got a phone doesn't mean to say that your notes, the notes delivered don't have integrity and aren't written well. Um, so, you know, that's what they've got to make sure mm-hmm. is that the notes aren't patronising. And, yep, well, like our, like our own good publication, you know, that's we it. reach 
you know, uh, the areas that most other music publications can't reach. You know, we, we, we hopefully, you know, we reach a broad audience and this is what these notes need to do. Definitely. I'm definitely looking forward to trying it myself. Yeah, I, I am. I, I don't think I'd, I'd like to be told what I'm listening to because I like to sort of experience music for myself. But I, I like the idea of having some background detail and context while I'm listening. That would be great. Mm. I'm not sure I want to be told when to clap. I think... Oh, clap now. Great. This would have clap no, now. Applause. You know, like a bad idea, actually. <laughs> this is the whole old story of JFK, you know, when he had the concerts at the White House, he didn't know when to clap and you had to get someone to subtly close a door in his sight so that that would give a signal for him to applaud. <laughs> Mm, and exactly. I think that's, you know, so if, if on the notes it says, you know, clap now, yeah. brilliant. Or, they can or end, don't clap. I was about to say, end of the sketch, so Tchaikovsky's sick simply, don't, don't stop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Excellent. Right. Well, I think we'll move on. Um, uh, it's time for my uh, my story in the magazine. Uh, we're going to have a bit of Brahms, though, to, to move us softly through to the next story. So that was Brahms's String Sextet, number one in B flat. Gosh, a beautiful piece of music. And that was the piece of music that Marin Alsop has chosen in one of our features this month as the piece that really sort of lit uh, her musical passions when she was a young girl, it, uh, 13 years old apparently, um, and she heard it being played on someone's record player through a door and was so compelled that she sat down and tears were soon rolling down her cheeks. Well, yes, emotional stuff indeed, but that's what this feature is all about. What is the music that first grabbed you as a youngster and got you into classical music? And this is to tie in with the BBC's new uh, selection of 10 pieces. Um, every year the BBC chooses 10 masterpieces pieces really to to get kids enthused into music and to introduce them into various genres of music uh, within the classical canon this year they've got um, pieces by Gershwin, Ravi Shankar, Delia Derbyshire, Vivaldi, Steve Reich and also a uh, world premiere by Hans Zimmer which is all rather exciting but um Michael, what was the piece of music that got you interested into classical music? I mean, um, for me, it was Peter and the Wolf. I mean, I just remember hearing an abridged version, mm-hmm. uh, a record that came free with Ribena, would you believe? <laughs> Ribena. Uh, I know. Uh, mine was The Planets. Uh, probably Jupiter was my favourite at the time. I had that, um, it was called The Magical Musical Box, which music box, which was the part work. You got a, a book and a CD every every month. So that the first issue was uh, was The Planets. I was about nine or ten, I think, when that came out. Yes. Loved it. M- mine was the 1812 Overture. Cannons? Cannons, Yep. Bounce around the living room whenever the <laughs> cannons fired. I pretended to be shot and kind of hurled myself behind the sofa. <laughs> Isn't that one where they used to advertise peanut butter, didn't they, with uh, the 1812 overture? Oh, did they? I yes. Can't that. So each time a cannon goes off, the the, the, the peanuts fly out of the. Um, oh yeah, I, I, I have seen that. Yes, yeah, so that's uh, yes. 
It shows you how much more sophisticated Marion Allsop is than I am that she went for Brahms' sextet number one, whereas I went for big loud cannons in Tchaikovsky. But I can live with that. Well, it's an interesting selection. I'm not going to you know, ruin the surprise for everyone, but um, you know, interesting that Evelyn Glennie chose Kadai's Haryana suite. Um, you know, I think, I think it's whatever you're sort of introduced to as a young kid, you can become hooked on. Definitely. And a couple of the choices I like are, are people who've just overplayed the cassette tape to the point of it breaking because they just <laughs> kept rewinding it and playing it over and over again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, let's move on to Michael. You're going to talk to us about the recording of the month. I am. So the recording of the month this month is called Handel's Queens. It's released on Signum Classics. And this is uh, Bridget Cunningham and uh, London Early Opera, uh, along with Lucy Crowe and Mary Bevan. They're basically sort of reclaiming, if you like, uh, this story of, of the two so-called warring sopranos, Cazzoni and Faustina, uh, but but telling the real story, which is, in fact, that they weren't rivals at all and uh, were just damn good singers and sang together uh, on stage in London and in Italy. And it's a brilliant selection of arias uh, from operas, not just by Handel, but also Orlandini, Polarolo, Bonancini, Hasse and Leo as well. Uh, Beautiful selection, uh, riveting performances, and uh, I absolutely love it. Really magical. And uh, we're going to have a track from it now. Uh, it's Il Volo Cosi Fido al Dolce from Handel's Riccardo Primo. Uh, so that was Lucy Crow uh, with Bridget Cunningham in London Early Opera uh, performing on Handel's Queens, which is out on Signum Classics. Marvellous. Fantastic. So I think it's time, talk, talking of recordings, to move on to First Listen. First Listen. So before we kick off with sharing our favourite new recordings, we'd like to tell you about how you can get involved in sharing your musical discoveries with us and your fellow readers. Plus, you can hear our choice of the latest recordings on our playlist curator page. Once you're there, just look for The Playlist. And don't forget to send us what you've been listening to to our email address at music at classical-music.com and you could be in with a chance of being published on our Music to My Ears page. So I'm going to kick off with a bit of Kabalevsky and his Kula Brunion Overture. This is a overture to the first of his six operas. Um, Kabalevsky was an early uh, 20th century Russian composer who mostly really pretty much towed the line uh, in Soviet Russia. So none of the sort of Shostakovich uh, defying the authorities. This was a composer who wrote in, in, in such a way that he was never censored at all. So his music was just, uh, you know, very beautiful to listen to. And this is a rollicking piece of music. It's sort of uh, the Russian equivalent of uh, Bernstein's Condide overture, actually. Uh, it features the Malmo Symphony Orchestra conducted by Daryl Ang, and I was rather taken with this.
so that was uh, Kabalevsky's uh, Couleur Brignon Overture, um, and that was on the Naxos label, performed by the Malmo Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Daryl Ang. Jeremy, what have you brought? I've been enjoying Hyperion's wonderful Romantic Violin Concerto series, which has been running for a while now. Before that, they did the Romantic Piano Concerto series, which was lasted for lots of volumes, and the Violin Concerto series has been every bit as inspirational. Um, it's rarely dull and it's rarely kind of disappointing the discs in these in this series. And occasionally there's an absolute gem in there. And they're now on number 22 in the series. And the first work featured here has really caught my imagination. It's the Violin Concerto in D Major, op- Opus 87, by Edward Lassen, who is a composer I didn't know much or, in fact, anything at all about beforehand. He's Danish. He lived from 1830 to 1904. Um, and this work is fascinating because it's the kind of... A lot of it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of a Mendelssohn. There's almost a little bit of Vorjak in there, and he's almost an exact contemporary of Vorjak. But he also kind of has these moments where he very, goes very rustic as well. He kind of chucks all sorts of clever effects on the violin as well. Um, and one thing which particularly fascinates me, you mentioned it, Nielsen earlier on, is that I wonder if Nielsen actually knew this work when he wrote his own violin concerto, because there's little moments where you think, Oh, there's a strange similarity there. Um, so it might have almost kind of been a forerunner to Nielsen's, but that's that's my own guesswork, to be honest with you. Anyway, I want to play you a little bit of where this work kind of goes into that kind of folky feel, which I mentioned. The second movement, the Andante Cantabile, is very lyrical, very beautiful, before going into this musette. And that's what we're going to hear now. And this disc is performed by Linus Hort, the violinist, with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra under Anthony Hermus. And thank you very much for that. It's very beautiful. Uh, so I'm sticking with the violin, and this is... Uh, you can't seem to move at the moment without uh, another John Williams sort of compilation of film music being released, which for me is great because I love him. But this latest one from uh, DG is actually really very special. Um, he's uh, teamed up with the violinist and Sophie Mutter and gone back to uh, many of his great uh, movie themes and re-sort of cast them, if you like, uh, for solo violin and orchestra, sort of, in a way, fashioning mini violin concertos. Um, it's it's an interesting performance. It, it's it's quite wild. It's quite virtuosic, and uh, I think that shows in this piece, which is the duel from uh, Williams's score from the Adventures of Tintin. So that was Anne-Sophie Mutter and the Recording Arts Orchestra of Los Angeles, conducted by John Williams. 
Uh, I'm afraid that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. Our fantastic jingles were composed by Christopher Maxim and our podcast is produced here in Bristol by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. So it's goodbye from me, Michael and Jeremy. Goodbye. Goodbye. And there'll be a whole fresh new set of BBC Mag team members to chat next month about our November issue. So see you then. Goodbye. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast. Do you want to be part of a global community of people who are passionate about sound? Join the House of Bang & Olufsen for the latest news on sound innovation, as well as invites to exclusive events, special offers and behind-the-scenes content. You'll also be the first to receive information about new and limited series products, from atelier editions to highly coveted collaborations. Sign up today at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical.